So excited to be back one more Sunday to share with you in the Word of God. I'm particularly excited about talking about today's topic, which is drawing near to God. Um, You've noticed that we've been working our way through the book of James, and the reason we started with the book of James to expose it and work through is because it covers so many of the basic principles of what Christianity is. One of the things that we realize in our world today is that there is a newfound pseudo-spirituality where everybody wants to be drawn close to something. Everyone wants to do something in order to feel spiritual. Many of those of us who even proclaim to be Christians are often delving into these different types of pseudo-spiritual methods to not only receive spiritual insight, but to also be drawn closer to God. Unfortunately, many of us in our pulpits have fallen into mysticism and sometimes even witchcraft that makes us believe we are having these spiritual experiences that we think bring us peace, that we think bring us completeness, that we think bring us good vibes, that we think bring centeredness. How many of us even today have reverted to horoscopes, meditation, calming crystals and stones, and then we treat drawing near to God as our last resort? In the life of a believer, however, there should be an endless pursuit of God, his ways, and his righteousness. Be clear. The desire to be close to God and for God is motivated in us by none other than the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand this. No one who is in opposition to God actively pursues him. Not a single one. But what I do want you to see today is that the drawing to God is not just a suggestion, but it is an imperative commandment to all of those who believe. Think of it this way. Many of us in this room either have friends or desire to have friends, or even if we pretend to be loners, need at least one friend that we can call our own. Very often in the development of a friendship, we often only give as much as the other person is willing to give. The reality is that we are not willing to be vulnerable on our own, so often we wait to see how far they'll go in the friendship to know how much we'll commit to the friendship as well. I think we'll all admit that we're only as comfortable as giving as much as the other person is comfortable giving. Now, in a much, much larger way, our nearness and closeness to God is always predicated on our earnest desire for him. While he doesn't necessarily give us more of him, the more we give of ourselves, the deeper our relationship with God goes. And as the Bible tells us, he gives us more grace 
So let's jump into our text for today as we see what the steps for drawing close to God really are. Go with me to James chapter 4, verse 5. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. and Purify your hearts, you double minded. Let's begin with the first verse that we see here. And I'll admit to you, that first verse, even if you're looking at it, that is a difficult verse to interpret. I had to look among my different components and contemporary scholars and theologians to understand exactly what James meant in this verse. The scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, what are the views of this text? Because if we get this wrong, then we stand in an opportunity to get the whole meaning and divine opportunity of this text wrong. Everyone would agree who interprets this text that when we see the word spirit here, this is not making a reference to the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons that we know this is not making a reference to the Holy Spirit is because the text says that God, the subject, yearns jealously over the spirit. Now, if you understand the Trinity, you understand that the that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. There is no reason why God would yearn jealously for the third member of the Trinity. So we know that the spirit he's referring to is not the Holy Spirit. If God is the subject of the yearning jealously, then the only reasonable way that God could be expressing his jealousy is toward us. It's for us. We have seen all throughout the Old Testament That the Bible tells us that God desires and yearns for us so much so that the Bible says that you shouldn't have any other gods before me. Why? Because the Lord your God is a jealous God. I remember there's this clip that still goes around of Oprah talking about her spiritual journey and she said one of the things that confused her as a child is she would hear that God is a jealous God and she would say well who is he jealous of me but I want to offer you some clarity God is not jealous of you God is jealous for you see the wording there all makes the difference God earnestly desires us. We see it all throughout the Old Testament when Israel was rejecting God, when they were forsaking God. God never ceased pursuing them. 
Because he yearned jealously for them. So I believe that when James says that scripture says he is not making a specific reference to one scripture that says this, but he's making a reference to the culmination of scripture in the Old Testament, which has confirmed to us the meaning of this text. God jealously desires us. God desires us. Therefore, we know he is not jealous of us, but he is jealous for us. And we'll make that point number one today. God yearns for us. God yearns for us. Understanding the language here is crucial when he says jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Every one of us who is living has been breathed in us the breath of life. In the Old Testament, we see that Ruach. In the New Testament, we see that that is Numa. It is a perfect translation from old to new. He has breathed the breath of life in us. That breath that God has breathed in us is the spirit that all of us have inside of us. Remember, we are all triune beings, mind, which is our soul, our spirit and our body. God has breathed a spirit into this living body, and it is the breath of life that gives this empty body life at all. God desires and actively pursues us. Now, that doesn't make sense. How could God in all his divinity and all his nature and all his wisdom and all his power desire such feeble and fallible creatures as ourselves? Let me tell you why. Because we understand that the Bible tells us that the spirits that he has placed in us from the day that we are born are at war with God. We are at enmity with God. And if you believe any other belief, then you don't understand the way that salvation works. From the minute that we are born, we are not born in relationship with God. We are born apart from God. But it is God's desire to reconcile us back into right relationship with him. When was that relationship broken? That relationship was broken in the garden. And since that time, God's whole desire has been to bring us back in fellowship with himself. It is because of the fallenness that took place in the garden of Eden. That we are fallen ourselves. And not only are we fallen. But we are enemies to God. Yet. He pursues us. How many of you have enemies that not only are you not pursuing them. But you are evading them as much as you possibly can. We have been made enemies of God. And instead of going around the corner so that he can talk to us, he can see us. His earnest desire is to capture our hearts. 
and draws back to himself. Jesus illuminated this in several parables. One of them was the parable of the lost sheep when he talked about if a shepherd loses even one of a hundred sheep that he will leave the ones that he has in protection to go get the one. He also illuminated this with the woman who lost the coin and said that she searched her house vigorously and earnestly until she could find the coin that was lost. We even see this in the parable of the prodigal son, where when the prodigal son who had forsaken his father, when he comes back to him, he immediately clothes him as if he had been with him the whole time. That is the same way that God actively desires and pursues us. Though we are distant from him, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to draw us back to him. So it must be understood clearly. God actively pursues and desires us. And our salvation is the result of his pursuit for us, not our pursuit of him. Because he wasn't lost. If you think that you found God or that you pursue God apart from a saving relationship with God, you are incorrect. It was God who chased you down. Because he wasn't running from you. We were all running away from him. We earnestly seek and desire to know him because we understand the nature of God's pursuit of us. When we understand how diligently and how effectively God has pursued us, when we come into relationship with him, the only wise thing for us to do is turn around and pursue him. And we understand this because verse 6 says, but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does James mean by he gives us more grace? Again, I had to really search through my interpretations to get this scripture correct. God knows that we callously oppose him. But the only way that God knows that we will be drawn to him is by his grace. Therefore, even in our sin, he doesn't just give us grace, but he gives us more grace. He gives us greater grace. And it is that grace that pulls us into relationship with him. How do we know that he gives us more grace and greater grace? Because he didn't stop on the cross. Everything that Jesus had to do was completed on the cross. Yet God gives us more grace. What is the relationship between grace and humility in the life of a Christian? Listen to this. Proverbs 3, 34. Toward the scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, 
He gives favor. What about what 1 Peter says? 1 Peter 5 and 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. The response to God's grace is not boastful arrogance or self-righteousness, but it produces in us humility. Why? Because we know that our salvation is all because of the responsibility of God himself, not us. To say the Christian life is filled with grace must bring with it a feeling, not a feeling, but a feeling of us, in us, humility. We must be so humble. Because we realize that the nature of our salvation had nothing to do with us. That's why works-based salvation is so damning because it had everything to do with the individual. See, the belief is, is that if you think that salvation was a product of God's sovereign election, that you don't think there's any need to go witness because either you're elect or you're not. But let me tell you this. If you believe that your salvation was the product of your works, you certainly won't evangelize. Let me tell you why. Because if you got yours, they need to go get theirs. But because we realize that God saving us is a product only of his grace and not of our own merit, we go witness and draw as many people as we possibly can because we know it wasn't any doing of our own and it won't be any doing of their own either. To say the Christian life is filled with grace must, again, bring with it a feeling of humility. What does the Bible say? For who does God say receives grace? The humble. It's the humble who receive grace. Why are they humble? Because they have received grace. You see that equation? (laughs) Only the humble receive grace and only the people who are humble are but because they received that grace. This is not a reference to the common grace we all experience. What is common grace? Common grace is the common the commonality that God blesses us. He gives us places to live. He gives us food. He gives us life. He gives us shelter. These things are all common grace. You don't have to be a believer to receive God's common grace. But the grace he's talking about here is God's sovereign grace, which produces salvation in us. And so when it says humility in the Christian life, Humility in the Christian life is not a suggestion. It is a commandment. If you are a Christian, it produces in you humility. If there is a lack of humility, there's a lack of salvation. 
Because no one who is really saved actually believes that they have any reason to be proud at all. Because we realize that it's God's pursuit of us that saves us. It is because of his kindness, his mercy, his love, his grace that any of us believe. How could that not humble you? Brings us to point number two. Grace and humility produce submission. Grace and humility produce submission. Christy is in here somewhere because every time I try to make a reference to her, she's hiding somewhere just in case she went back with the kids. Did she go back with the kids? Amen. All right. So she's going to hear this later. I often tell people, I am submissive to my wife because I outkicked my coverage. I know I did. I don't deserve anybody as pretty as she is, as nice as she is, as humble as she is. I outkicked my coverage. Uh huh. That was a testimony. He wasn't just agreeing, but he outkicked his too. And so I understand that because I outkicked my coverage. It's her grace that she even is in a relationship with me at all. And you know what I do at home? Because one day I'm scared she's going to realize, who is this joker I didn't marry? I submit to everything she asked me to do. Because I don't ever want to take her grace for granted. Now, in a much, much larger way, Knowing what great grace we have received from God, the response should be to humbly submit ourselves because we don't ever want to take the grace of God for granted. Not because we don't just want to take advantage of him, but no one who really loves anything or anybody wants to abuse and misuse their grace. Because you love them so much, you are grateful for even a small amount of grace. And so what do we do in response to that grace? We humbly submit ourselves and our lives. Grace is not for those who lack humility and humility is not for those who lack grace. Both of those necessitate us submitting to God. Why? Because we know how undeserving we are to even be in a relationship with him at all. We know we didn't deserve this relationship. So when it says that God is scornful toward the scornful, it is that way because their scorn for him is an utter denial of the grace that God has extended to them. It is a rejection of the work that God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. The sign of a person, hear this, the sign of a person who lacks grace and humility is an inability to submit to God. And a person who is unable to submit to God very often have problems submitting in other areas of their lives as well. What does it mean to submit to God? In the Greek, those words literally mean to line up under. That's what it means. 
means I was out of alignment. But it is my submission and I'm bringing my life into alignment to what God says it should be. It is a willful and conscious submission to the law of God, the mandates of God, the word of God, the work of Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But it's not possible without the Holy Spirit. The person who is unwilling to do this is that way because they refuse the grace of God. That is the heart of arrogant self-righteousness. And every non-believer is guilty of arrogant self-righteousness. Why? Because if you are not a believer, you believe that you have enough righteousness within yourself and you don't need a savior. That's why the realization that I need to be saved means that I have come to the most humble part of my life because I have not realized that he can't be my savior. She can't be my savior. It can't be my savior. And I can't be my savior. Only Jesus Christ can be my savior. Let's be clear. We pursue God not out of selfish ambition or in our desire to gain more power or more anointing. We pursue God because we love God. We do it motivated out of the love that he has shown for us. What does John say? We love him, but we only love him Because he first loved us. We can't be Christians who are willing to proclaim him but not submit to him. We cannot be Christians who are willing to proclaim his name but unwilling to submit to God in the areas of our lives. No matter how much, no matter how difficult submission may be in an area, we must be willing to commit our ways to God. I want you to think like this. We submit to God because Jesus demonstrated to us the greatest submission possible. And the Bible admonishes us to follow his example. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to only his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we often quote this scripture, let this mind be in me, as also in Christ Jesus. And we don't understand that the very nature of that scripture carries so much weight. Submission to God must be done so in the same mind that God, that Jesus himself submitted to God. Jesus, by submitting to God, gave up his own personal interests. And we see it all through scripture. And not only that. He constantly reminded us that he came in the name of his father who had sent him. And he constantly reminded us that he was in complete submission to God the Father. Now, what ways does the Bible say that we see that Jesus submitted? We see one that Jesus submitted to his parents' authority. In Luke 2.51, Jesus and all his deity in Luke 2.51 submitted himself to his parents' authority. We see that Jesus, who was the king of the universe, submitted himself to the governmental authorities in Matthew 22.21. And the greatest submission that we see of Jesus Christ is that he inevitably submitted himself to death in Matthew 27 and 50. Jesus did all of that because of his submission to God. Likewise, we must be willing to submit ourselves. But what is Paul trying to show us is that by submitting to God, we are not giving up what Jesus himself gave up. When Jesus submitted himself to God, he forfeited the full power of his deity to be subjected to God. And here we are, we'll not even surrender the wretchedness of our humanity. How is he more willing to give up his position of power for the will of the Father? And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, even on the cross, when he could have mitigated any kind of way to get out of the situation, he constantly defaulted to the will of God. He submitted himself humbly to the will of God. I would love for this cup to pass over me, but nevertheless, it is not my will. Scripture tells us that even if he wanted to, he could have called 10,000 legions of angels and they would have gotten him off that cross. But he didn't. He submitted his deity to God. So when the Bible says that God opposes the proud, he opposes the proud because he sent his son, the most humble man that has ever lived, who humbled himself, not just to his father, but completely to the will of his father, which meant embarrassment, ridicule, and the most gruesome death anybody has ever experienced. 
Why does God oppose the proud? Because the proud oppose his son. Jesus says in John that the mark of our love for him is not in how much we pray, how much gospel music we listen to. It is when we keep his commandments. That's how you demonstrate if you love him or not. When we submit to his words. Last point. Point three. Submission produces resistance. Submission produces resistance. As our submission is a willful, oh, my mic is falling. Hold on. In fact, let's just do this. Amen. That's called versatility. But y'all ain't gonna give me credit because I'm supposed to be up here and be humble. As our submission is a willful and conscious lining up under the word of God, our resistance is our defiance against the ways of Satan. Now, I want you to understand this. In a marriage, it does not matter how much you submit to the spouse. It does not matter how much you obey the spouse. It does not matter how much time you spend with the spouse. It doesn't matter how much you take care of the spouse. If you can't resist the temptation of every other person who isn't your spouse. See, the evidence of your submission is not all the things you can do for them, but it's the fact that you resist all opportunities from other people who don't represent who your spouse is. See, many times we think because we check off all the religious boxes that we have become acceptable in the eyes of God but it is not until you faithfully resist the temptation of the God of this world that you can humbly submit yourself to Jesus Christ that's what submission looks like if you are not submitting and resisting then everything you do is superfluous and superficial in the eyes of God Because how well you resist produces how well you submit. If we are going to be pleasing to God, then we are submitting ourselves to him, his way, his truth, and all that he is. No matter how we do all the superficial acts, if we are not resisting the temptation to be unfaithful to God, then we are not submitting to him. If you are not resisting the temptation to be unfaithful to your spouse, you are not submitting to them. And it's the same with God. Last scripture, 1 John 5 and 18. We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are born from God, that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I want you to understand this. There is no purgatory between right and wrong for the Christian. Either you are completely right in the eyes of God or you are completely wrong in the eyes of God. There is no in between. That's why Revelation tells us, I would rather you be hot 
or be cold, but you can't be lukewarm. Either we are in Christ, submitting to the way of God, protected by God, or we are giving in to the temptation and desire of Satan. And one of the great ways that Satan is deceiving many is by causing us to think that we can be both in a relationship with him and a relationship with God all at the same time. But it's impossible. Either we will fully commit and submit our ways to the Lord or to Satan, but we will not submit to both. You will either be a Christian or you won't be. Now, if all of us are honest, if all of us are real, not only with ourselves, but with God, we all know that there are multiple areas in our lives that require more submission of us. There are some things that we do a great job resisting the temptation of, submitting ourselves to, because that may not be your predisposition to sin. That may not be your weakness. But you can't glory on the thing that isn't your weakness and gloss over the thing that is. We have to constantly submit ourselves in all ways to God. Every weakness, every flaw, every misstep that is produced in our lives, we have to constantly submit to God. Resist that temptation and then draw near to him. Look, there, there are people in this room, and, and I've been included in this, where either you have a relationship with God and you know there are ways that you can still pursue him more. You're unsure about your relationship with God and you don't even feel his nearness. And there are some in here who know you don't have one at all. If you are in a relationship with God and you don't feel the weight of his presence in your life, pursue him. Pursue him. The way that you earnestly pursue everything else in your life, lay it aside and pursue God. So well, how do I pursue God? You submit to him. Well, how do I submit to him? You read his word. And you read the word with an introspective eye. And when you see yourself in the word and you're not pleased with what you see, you accept that the word is true. And you pursue God in that area of your life. Whether it's lust, whether it's anger, whether it's pride, whether it's anxiety, faithlessness, whatever the area in your life is, if you know that you are weak in that area, don't accept weakness in that area. Pursue God. Submit yourself to his word. God never departs from us. God never forsakes us. He never moves. He is in a fixed position in our lives. So if you don't feel him as closely as you once did, just know 
God didn't move. We did. But when we see that we have deviated from his ways, do what the scripture says and line your lives back up with him. Let's pray.